I'm going to do our scripture reading here, our, our, uh, our, our sermon text, actually. And we're in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. It's found on page 886 of your pew Bible. And in a moment here, Pastor Brian's going to come up and preach. And then we're going to sing after that is the plan here, hopefully. So. But again, thank you for being patient. So we're in John chapter 1, page 886 of the pew Bible. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word. Let's pray before Brian comes. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son Jesus to become flesh and dwell on this earth so we could see his glory. From his fullness, we have received your grace. And Lord, help us to know more of you and your son. Help us to know what pleases you. Lord, may our words and our actions point the way to you. Lord, help us to never think of ourselves more highly than we ought and to never lose sight of the fact that Jesus is the one who is worthy. Lord, I pray for Brian right now. Lord, he needs the Holy Spirit's help. And I pray that the Spirit would take his words and transform them into spiritual darts. And Lord, I pray that these words would pierce our hearts and transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Roger, for reading our text. It's interesting when things uh, don't quite work out as you expect. Uh, it reminds us that we are not here to proclaim ourselves, as our theme says, theme verse. We do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And the essential things that we need to worship as a church are still here present with us. We have the Word of God opened. We can look into it and see who He is this morning. He can speak to us through His revealed Word and we can know Him. We are also going to uh, seek to worship him, not just through uh, singing that we're kind of postponing for a little bit, but through our listening as well, through the prayers that we pray. Uh, all the aspects that go into us being together is worship of God. And so this morning, um, maybe this is just a reminder of what truly is significant to us coming together as a church. Today, we're going to be starting a new series 
in the book of John. So we proclaim Jesus in the Gospel of John. We are moving from our Genesis series. So in the beginning, we saw Jesus there proclaimed through the first six chapters of Genesis. And we're going to see there's a, there is a connection here between what we've been looking at in Genesis and now what we're going to see in the Gospel of John. Specifically, even how John begins, begins his Gospel here. As we come uh, to this Gospel, we need to realize that that is a genre, Gospel. And uh, the, the Gospel genre is not simply a biography of Jesus of Nazareth. Sometimes we can think that that's what it is. It's just a biography. But rather, what we have to understand is that this genre gospel is telling the events of the life of Jesus in a certain way. It's arranged in a particular way for a particular purpose. And each of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, arrange the life of Jesus in a particular way. Certain things are highlighted to demonstrate certain aspects or to prove a certain point. So John's take on the life of Jesus is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke's. It's still Jesus' life. It's still historical truth, yet it's a bit different. And in fact, as we come to read the Gospel of John, some of the things he includes or some of the way he says things may seem odd to us because we're not Jews living in the first century. Uh, we didn't come from a Jewish culture, most of us. And so there's many things in here that are very Jewish in nature that John seeks to point out, ultimately, to fulfill his purpose, which we find in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Let me read it for you. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I agree with Donald Carson when he writes, the fundamental question of the fourth gospel is not who is Jesus, but who is the Messiah? Who is the Christ? His point is we want, we want people to believe Jesus is the Christ. That ties back into what we've been looking at in Genesis. What do we see in Genesis? We see that Moses is writing about a promised redeemer greater than himself that would redeem his people from their sins. The most likely people to ask the sort of question that John is seeking to answer of who is the Christ, who is the Son of God, would actually be the Jews. His desire is to present Jesus to his Jewish brothers in hopes that they would believe. I think most writers would say, most commentators would say that the, 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 the gospel of John is evangelistic in its purpose. But it's dominantly evangelistic to the Jewish people. And the desired result of John's writing is that Jews might believe the truth about Jesus, and that through belief in Jesus, they might have life. So therefore, the Gospel of John is not just, or not merely, a, uh, written to believers about the mission that Jesus has sent, but rather it is written to outsiders to perform the very mission Jesus came to do. John is writing to present 
them with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they might believe. And in light of all that, I want to answer a question here at the outset. How does studying John's gospel benefit us today? It's a couple things. Some here may claim to be believers in God's promised redemption, just like many of the first century Jews would have proclaimed. They would proclaim themselves to be followers of God, upholding His promise and His truths. And yet, what we find is that they reject the fulfillment of all those promises in Jesus Christ. Some people here need to believe in Jesus. Even some church members could be unbelievers here that have put their faith in their membership or put their faith in their good works or put their faith in the heritage that their parents were members here or their, their parents previous to them were members here. I mean, we celebrate 50 years. I'm not 50 yet. I don't understand what 50 years is. Some of you do. I don't. But I'm so excited about how God has been faithful through that. Yet, the temptation may be that, oh, I've been here for most of that time. Of course I'm saved. My parents were missionaries in South America. And as a kid growing up on the mission field, I thought, we're missionaries. Of course I'm saved. But I wasn't. I had not put my personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the same thing may be true of some here. So some here need to hear the mission of John, that you would believe in Jesus Christ. Some here need to be reminded of the Jesus that they believe in. The one that they put their trust in at their conversion. They need to see what it means to be a Christian. One of the best evangelical literature explains not only why one should be a Christian or how one should be a Christian, but what Christianity actually looks like. And what we find is the Gospel of John presents us with all three of those. It not only presents us of what it means to be a Christian or become a Christian or how you become a Christian, but what being a Christian looks like. And some of us need to be reminded of this as well. All of us can see uh, from the Gospel of John how to evangelize the lost as well and to be motivated to evangelize the lost. Those are three challenges that we have that can benefit us as we come and study the Gospel of John. The last thing I want to say in introduction is when it comes to the application of John's gospel. There's going to be a lot of repetition. If John's purpose is that you may believe, guess what we're going to talk about a lot. There's going to be a lot of repetition, and there's a necessity to repetition, but there's also a danger to repetition. You're going to be encouraged through the study to proclaim Jesus. I mean, that's our theme for this year. We proclaim Him. You're going to hear it over and over again, and you're going to need to hear it over and over again. We all do. But you need to be on guard against becoming apathetic or unmoved by the call to make much of Jesus Christ. Not only are you going to hear that, but you're going to be encouraged throughout this study to see and embrace and then celebrate Jesus as the promised Redeemer. John makes his case for Jesus as the Christ the Messiah, and you will have the opportunity to see the glory of Jesus over and over and over again. 
You need to be on guard against thinking that you have maybe heard all of it before or unaffected because, well, you're not Jewish or you're already a Christian. As Christians, we need to continually see and Savior our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So hopefully today as we start this study and over the next uh, couple months as we work through the Gospel of John, uh, it will be an encouragement to you. Let's ask God's blessing as we go to His Word this morning. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You that it is a light unto our feet. We thank You that through it we learn of You, we know You, we see the grace Your undeserved favor that is given to us through it. The loving kindness that you have poured out through your Son, Jesus Christ. Through it, we are able to find the the joy and love and hope we desperately long for and seek in so many worthless and unworthy things. Uh, Today, I pray that as we look at this first chapter, these first 18 verses, that we would just see See the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we meet, that you would bless other churches as they meet today. We pray for Bible Baptist Church in Romeoville and Pastor Kip and Pastor Allen there. Lord, we just ask that you would use your word to encourage your people and that we would faithfully preach it. Lord, we pray for Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church in Countryside and Pastor Dustin there. And I just thank you for his encouraging ministry to me. And I pray that you encourage his church through his preaching this morning. Lord, we pray for Faith Bible Church right down the road from us, Pastor Bob and Pastor Kevin and Pastor Jay. Thank you for the the opportunities we've had as a church to benefit from Pastor Kevin's preaching. And I pray this morning that you would use your word in their church to encourage their people, strengthen them to love you and serve you. Lord, we ask it of ourselves as well. Lord, may we hear from you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, our main point is this. We proclaim Jesus as the eternal Lord. Hey, look at that. Great job, guys, back there. Wonderful job. So now you can actually see my main point. And I was going to like say it like five times, but now, now it's up there. So we proclaim Jesus as the eternal God and creator, the promised Savior, the only giver of salvation, and the truest revelation of God. I mean, John 1, 1 through 18 is packed full of uh, qualifications and information and descriptions of Jesus Christ. And so I've tried to hone them down. I had to choose four, so I have four of them there for you that we're going to look at today. We proclaim Jesus as the eternal God and creator, the promised Savior, the only giver of salvation, and the truest revelation of God. So this morning we're going to look at these four things. These are going to be the four points of my sermon. As we walk through them, hopefully we'll see how glorious and great Jesus Christ is and how as we embrace Him, as we celebrate Him, as we love Him, that it would motivate us to proclaim Jesus. I mean, as you look at this main point, I try to always include the application of what we're to do with this. And what is it we're to proclaim? We proclaim that's what we're meant to do as john proclaims here in chapter one so we should feel that same urge to proclaim jesus christ for who he is so let's look at who he is this morning first of all jesus is the eternal god and creator verses one through five 
John starts by, by not giving us the name of Jesus, but rather giving us a title, the Word. Uh, in Greek, it's logos. It stems from the Old Testament. And as the God who speaks in creation, God who speaks in revelation, the God who speaks in deliverance or salvation, it's the God who speaks to His prophets and they declare the Word of the Lord to God's people. John uses it here not as a product of Jewish philosophy, of Plato, uh, that was often a part of Jewish society in these days, but John rejects many of the ideas of Plato, the duality of, of the uh, ideal and real world being separated, and rather what John does is John says that you know, the ideal logos of God is not separated from the reality of the world, but rather he, he's the one who creates the reality. And not only that, as we're going to see, he steps into that reality all throughout history, but most specifically in the incarnation. This this is a a powerful self-expression of God, the Word, the Logos. And it says here, this connection all the way back with Genesis 1-1, it says this Word was in the beginning. There it was. As we studied Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, the Logos, was there. And in turn, what we read there in that first phrase, in the beginning was the Word, is that the Logos is eternal. That's where we get this idea of of Jesus being the eternal God. The Logos was in the beginning. There He was, the eternal existing God. And not only that, he goes on to say, and the Word was with God. The Logos here is a person distinguishable from the other parts of the Godhead, yet enjoying an intimate relationship with God. We see that personality coming out in verse 2 when he says, He, He here, He, a person, one one of the three parts of the Godhead here described. But he goes on to say, he's not done. And the Word was God. This Logos, this person distinguishable from the other parts of the Godhead is truly God. He is deity. He is one of the three persons of the Godhead. He truly, fully, R.C. Sproul prefers truly God. MacArthur, I think, uses fully God. But Sproul doesn't like fully because he says, well, he's also fully man, and I don't want anyone to distinguish and say he's not, if he's full of one, does he not have the other? Anyway, that's a debate you can look up later. Um, truly God. Truly. There's, there's no doubt about it in John's mind. This word was God. So important. He goes on to affirm his eternality in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Where God was, the Logos was. So when we read in the beginning, God, the Logos is there. He is eternal. Verse 3, we see all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we walked through Genesis chapter 1, and we saw all that God had made. And guess what? This Logos was the one doing the making. 
There is nothing that he didn't take a part in in making, is what John says. There's not anything made that was made without him. Jesus had a hand in everything that was made. He is the creator, participating in all of the creation. And then in verse 4, he says, In him was life. The life was the light of men. Here, right at the beginning, John brings in two descriptor words that he's going to use throughout the rest of his gospel. Life and light. This logos is the source of life. You know, when, we, when we talk about Jesus is the only hope of eternal life, it's because He is the source of life. And separation from the Logos meant separation from God, which meant separation from life. And what did we see in Genesis? That when they rejected God and His commands, what was the result? Sin, and because of sin, death. Because the Logos is the source of life. And that life was the light of men. The context here is one of creation, not primarily salvation. Maybe he's referring here to the image of God that was created in man or how humanity was tasked to spread God's dominion throughout creation. That this light of men was supposed to be spreading the the, the life of the Logos. We know that humanity failed in doing it. But it definitely ties the Logos to humanity as its life and its light. And therefore, the Logos is the eternal creator that is necessary for humanity. Necessary for humanity. And then in verse 5, we see the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The light is unassailable and undefeatable. Again, the context here is one of creation, not primarily of salvation. And the fall of humanity that occurs in Genesis 3 that we looked at did not change or diminish the light of the Logos. As we learned in our Genesis study, The covenant of redemption was made prior to the fall. Prior to the fall, the God had planned to redeem a people for Himself. The plan was before the foundation of the the world, Jesus is the Lamb who was slain. That was the plan. And so when the fall comes, it doesn't change. It doesn't diminish the light of the Logos. Because that was the plan all along. The plan all along was that the light would shine in the darkness. That darkness would come, but the light would shine. And the darkness of sin, we're told here, did not overcome the light because the light was always meant to overcome it. That's what it was meant to do. Now we can see implications here for understanding salvation. But we shouldn't miss the creation context in which it was set, lest we miss the glory of God's redemptive plan in eternity past. When man fell in Genesis 3, it did not make 
the light of the logos even flicker. The light shines in the darkness and it does not overcome it. The fall into sin could not rob the logos of his redemptive light. And you know what? Our sin today still does not rob him of his light. It does not. Rather, he shines all the brighter where sin abounded. What are we told? Paul tells us grace abounds all the more. Because the light will not be diminished. Second thing, Jesus is the promised Savior. Verses 6 through 8. Here, John begins to present another John. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Not the John who wrote the gospel. This is John the Baptist. Uh, The other gospels tend to describe him that way. John does not because John never uses his own name in this gospel. He often calls himself the one that Jesus loved or the beloved disciple And so he doesn't feel the need to differentiate. But this is John the Baptist, or maybe the way we could put it in in the Gospel of John's vernacular, this is the prophet John. He is the one sent by God to bear witness about Jesus Christ. This is the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1, Isaiah 43. He is the prophet sent by God to relay the message of God And what do we see? Verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John is that witness. He's come to bear that witness. A prophet's purpose is to bring the message of the one who sent him. And so he is a witness to the logos that is of God. And his primary goal is to call people to believe in that light that has been given. Verse 8 tells us that John is not the light but points to the light. Uh, There's a number of things we can take from this. I mean, one is that Jesus, when He actually comes in His incarnation, is truly human, so that it was possible that some might mistake John the Baptist for the one to come. Because Jesus is truly human. But I think there's more to it than that. I think another thing that we can see is that the, the anticipation of the Old Testament is expressed here. From the promise in Genesis 3 that the seed would come to crush the head of the serpent, God's people have been waiting. They have been waiting. And what we're told here is they still have to wait a little longer because John's not it. And in fact, as we understand where John is positioned in the, the redemptive history. John is the last of what we would consider as one of the Old Testament prophets. He is the culmination, in a sense, of the Old Testament prophets. Here, John, like all of the Old Testament, points to the light, points to the logos, points to the one. He is a representative here of all that we have in the Old Testament building up to the culmination of redemptive history and that is Jesus Christ. In this section here, John, uh, John, the writer of the Gospel, is telling us that the promised Savior is about to come. 
He's about to come. He's almost here. The final prophet is proclaiming the truth. And now, guess what's going to happen? Jesus is going to come. Which leads us to point three. Jesus is the only giver of salvation. Jesus is the only giver of salvation. Verses 9 through 13. We read here, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. The anticipation is built. He's coming. John's not ready to say he's already arrived. We'll get to that in verse 14. The word becomes flesh. He's, he's coming. He's almost here. This is the one that the prophecies foretold of. This is the one who will fulfill all of that prophecy. And it's, he's the one who enlightens Everyone, we're going back to what John the prophet said, that all might believe through him. He was coming so that he might give the gospel to both Jew and Gentile. Though, though John in his gospel is writing specifically to a Jewish audience, yet he understands even throughout the Old Testament, the promises of Abraham were that all the nations would be blessed. And so Jesus is coming and he is the one who will enlighten Everyone, just as it was promised. Verse 10 reminds us that he's eternal again. He was in the world. Jesus has always existed. Before his incarnation, Jesus still existed. He is God. He is Logos. He is light. That light already existed. He made the world, so of course He's present in it. And throughout the Old Testament, again and again and again, we see, we see this promise of the Gospel and the pointing to Jesus Christ and the hope of this One who will save. And yet, what does John tell us here? He says, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. We could... Look back at a lot of different references in the Old Testament. I mean, going back to our Genesis study, what about Cain? Abel seemed to understand. Abel offered an atonement sacrifice. Understanding one was to come who would save. But what does Cain do? He offers his own. And even after lovingly confronted by God, he still rejects God and turns away. And we continue to see the line of Cain up until Lamech who, who thwarts many of God's uh, commandments. And then going on further, what do we see? We see that, that lineage building and building and building until the point in which God brings the flood to judge mankind who had rejected Him. We don't even have to go back that far. I mean, we could, we could go back to Israel and, and their wilderness wandering and the rejection of, of, of God's command to enter into uh, the promised land. We're to look at different kings. We can look at our own heart prior to God's work. The world rejects Him. The world does not know Him. Though He is present and though He is available, like as Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, God is evident and can be seen, and yet the world rejects Him, and they are now without excuse. 
Verse 11, the light was rejected by humanity on the whole, but, by spe- but specifically by his own people, it says. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Obviously, we could jump forward and, and, and consider Jesus' incarnation and how he came to the Jewish people, and yet overall, the Jewish people reject him. But again, the context is still not at his incarnation. So again, we see uh, Jesus, who is the light of humanity, the life of humanity, and as, as he is presented to humanity through the promises of Genesis 3, through the promises of the atoning sacrificial system, what do we see? Humanity, by and large, rejects him. But not only that, we read even in Genesis that the sons of God, who seemingly were the ones worshiping God, eventually as well fall away, reject him. The flood comes. We see Israel, God's chosen people throughout the Old Testament. But what is often what we think of when we think of God's chosen people? Not their faithfulness, but their unfaithfulness. He came to his own. The promises of the Redeemer, of the Logos, of the light, of the life of men is given to God's people, and yet even they reject him in essence it's a kind of a foreshadowing of what will happen when jesus is incarnated and comes and walks on this earth and that the majority of the jews reject him but the glorious the glorious gospel will not be stopped verse 12 but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I think this verse helps us understand that salvation in the Old Testament, looking forward to Jesus, and salvation in the New Testament after the coming of Jesus is the same. We all are saved by faith. Our faith being counted as righteousness. And the object of our faith is the promised Redeemer, the Logos of God, Jesus Christ. Always. Salvation only comes, only comes by receiving and believing in this promised Savior. This is the faith. And this salvation is available to all who would receive and believe. And what we know, yeah, we can go to the Old Testament, we can see all the all the. All all, all the unfaithfulness. But yet throughout it, what do we also see? We also see those who believed. We go to Hebrews chapter 11 and we read of all of these men who by faith believed in God. And though they did not yet receive what had been promised. Why? Jesus had not yet come. The one they were putting their faith in, this Redeemer, had not yet come. But yet God counted their faith as righteousness. And that when Jesus came, I believe those glorious saints of old rejoiced. They gloried. This is the one. This is the one we put our faith in. And He has not left us. He has given the life. He 
his promise. Salvation is only given by the Logos. The right to become children of God. I think right can be best understood as a privilege. We're privileged of being part of God's covenant people is something that only the Logos, only Jesus Christ, this life that was the light of men can give to us. It's God's salvation to give by counting our faith as righteousness. Verse 13 reminds us that the salvation is the new birth only God can give. New life only possible from God. It's we who were, who were born again. And John's going to take that theme later on as he deals with Nicodemus. This idea of being born again. We need to be born again. New life needs to come. And it's not of blood, he says here. Salvation and faith and the right of becoming God's children does not proceed from our lineage. Remember, who he's writing to specifically, it's not about being Jewish. It's not about being an Israelite. Being an Israelite saved no one. And we apply it to us today. Our parents' faith cannot save us. Kids, your parents' faith cannot save you. It cannot. Not only does he say that, he says it's not of the will of flesh nor the will of man. I think these two mean basically the same thing, that salvation, faith, and the right of becoming God's children do not proceed from our nature, from our natural desires. Your own human, fleshly, sinful desire without the Spirit of God awakening you is spiritually dead does not lead to spiritual life. It cannot save you. It just doesn't belong to our nature. Nor does it proceed from us to be given the right to be the children of God. We don't let God save us. We don't. If God does not send life to us, we are utterly lost. If He does not love us first, we have no salvation. If He does not first choose us, we have no salvation. It is grace alone that God has chosen to save and that He gives salvation freely. We must remember that grace, grace is undeserved favor. Completely undeserved. It's not something we earn. It's not something we can manufacture. Our nature does not deserve to be children of God. No, it is grace that makes us this. And that's why he says here, but of God. But of God. God has willingly, out of undeserved love, given us new life. Faith is truly a gift from God. Which leads us to our fourth point. Jesus is the truest revelation of God. Verses 14 through 18. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Finally, we arrive at the incarnation. Here is the Gospel of John's Christmas story. 
Now you have the, the Christmas story in Matthew, the Christmas story in Luke, and they're kind of long. John's is pretty short. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. There it is. The Logos became truly human. That which was truly God has now become truly human. Everything that it meant to be human, Jesus was. Everything that meant to be God, Jesus was. He was truly both God and truly man. And the Logos, it says here, dwelt. Or again, this word is, is tying these Jewish people back to their Old Testament. It's tabernacled. He built a tabernacle with his people. He came to live among them. It points back to this tent of meeting where the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man would with a friend, Exodus 30, 11, or 33, 11. This is truly God with us. God with us, living amongst us, walking amongst us, talking amongst us. And what does he say? It's the glory of God revealed. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, he came in humility, taking on the form of creation, what he had created, and yet still radiating the glory of God. This points back to Moses and his seeing God's glory. God's glory is his goodness. What does he say when when Moses asked that God would, would let him see him? And he said, I'll show you my glory. So this little, this, this aspect of God passing by, this hue of his glory, because that's all he, that Moses could take. And what does he say? What does God say? I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. His glory is his goodness. It will pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And this name is I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He is the I am who I am. Mercy and compassion. And God's glorious goodness in the Old Testament centers around two specific words, his hesed and his met. Hesed referring to the steadfast love and mercy, the covenant love, the graciousness of God. And we get this term grace. Met is God's truth and God's faithfulness to his people. Notice what we read here. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of chesed and met. Full of his covenant love, his graciousness, and his true faithfulness. Verse 15 goes on to say that John bore witness about him. So the prophet John is brought back into the picture. He first, we first saw the prophet John in this pre-incarnate logos, just describing who he is coming. But now the prophet speaks of the incarnate logos. And as the prophet John represents the last of the Old Testament prophets, the culmination of them all, he now symbolizes the fulfillment of all of Old Testament prophecy. The promised Savior has come. First, we saw John as he is coming. But now, we see the prophet John saying, he has come. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This is him. This is him. 
The prophet John Message declares that the incarnate Logos, Jesus Christ, is far greater than himself. His revelation, his prophecies from God's will given to mankind through his incarnation overwhelmingly surpasses John's ability. The revelation that Jesus brings is just overwhelmingly better than what has come before. Because the Logos is truly God made flesh living among us. He is this truest revelation of God. And therefore the prophet John just stands, how can he not be better than me? I'm just a man. How can he not? Verse 16, the incarnate Logos gives us a new and greater grace. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. But the word translated upon really should rightly be translated instead of or in place of. Grace in place of grace. Meaning that the grace God has provided in the incarnate Logos, Jesus Christ, is greater than the grace that he had previously provided. We say, well, what grace did God previously provide? Well, that's verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. And we have said again and again, the law was good. If it's used rightly. It is grace pointing to Jesus Christ. The law was meant to point all of God's people to Jesus Christ. Now, many of them didn't use it rightly. And many of them are not going to use it rightly here in the Gospel of John. We're going to see how Jesus corrects that here in the Gospel of John. But the law was grace given to point God's people to Christ. Moses understood this. As he writes the Pentateuch, he is writing it to call a redeemed people from the slavery of Egypt to see that they have a greater slavery of sin and that Jesus, though he does not say his name, is the greater redeemer that they need. The sacrificial system was not meant to be the satisfaction entirely of God's wrath for sin, but rather a covering pointing to the one who would come, the greater grace, which is Jesus Christ. And that's what we read here. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The greater grace. And here it is, although I've been using his name, here it is where John finally reveals Jesus to us. The Logos is Jesus Christ. And He, from His fullness, will give us this new and greater grace. And so while the law could point to grace and truth, it, it could only point to what is found in Jesus Christ. The law could, could give a a covering and the law could give this foreshadowing of grace and truth but the grace and truth is always found in Jesus Christ this hesed and met of God Jesus is the new covenant which is inaugurated by his shed blood Jesus is the seed to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the king to rule on the eternal throne. Jesus is the land of promise where life is eternal. Jesus is the life that is the light of men. 
that once was lost, supposedly, by humanity in the fall into sin is finally and fully made right and whole in Jesus Christ. He, out of his fullness, gives us new and greater grace. We come to verse 18, back to the fact that he is the truest revelation of God, and the fact that what was impossible becomes possible. John starts with what was impossible. No one has ever seen God. Oh, Moses saw the afterglow of God's glory. And in a diminished sense, he saw his form and spoke with him face to face, but did not truly see God. Isaiah, when he comes into the temple, what does he see? He sees the throne and just the hem of God's garment, and he was undone. Coming that close to the presence of God, just completely completely messed with him. Carson writes, the consistent Old Testament assumption is that God cannot be seen, or more precisely that for a sinful human being to see him would bring death, whether it's Exodus 33.20, Deuteronomy 4.12, Psalm 97.2. And any apparent exceptions to that were always qualified in some way, like with Moses. He just saw the the afterglow of his glory. So we understand why John would write this. No one has ever seen God. Then what, is, what do we read? He has made him known. God made known. Jesus does the impossible for humanity and reveals God to humanity. In his fullness. What humanity could not see, namely God, Jesus reveals to them. Jesus stands in front of them. Jesus speaks to them. And Jesus is the truest revelation of God. Therefore, to know Jesus is to know God. Reminds me of one of the disciples saying, show us the Father. What's Jesus' response? Have you not been with me for so long and not know this? <laughs> like, don't you get it? I am the revelation of the Father to you. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. What could not be seen by mankind, by human eyes, is now revealed in Jesus Christ. He makes the impossible possible. Before I give the application, just one more thing. It's parallel with verse 1 1. Jesus here is described as the only God. As we saw in 1, the Word was God. He is the one who is at the Father's side. The Word was with God. He has made him known. He is the Logos of God. Revealed God to us. Quick application, first of all, no, God is true, or Jesus is truly God, the promised Savior who has become truly man to reveal God to us. This revelation is of a God full of grace and truth, undeserved favor to save all who receive him and believe in faithfulness to keep his promise, even in, sending, in, in the sending of his one and only Son to earth to save us. That this Jesus, this Savior, would die on the cross for our sins. 
taking the punishment of our sins for all who would trust in him only to save them. This is what we should know. This revelation of God to us comes through Jesus Christ. And how should we respond? How should we walk because of this? First of all, trust him today. Receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Today is the day of salvation. We have proclaimed Jesus to you. Now come to him. Receive him. Believe in his name. For those of you who have, stand amazed at who Jesus is and what he has done. Truly God and truly man. To save and reveal God to us. How truly loving truly gracious is God. How faithful to his promises. And then, as you have stood amazed, as you celebrated in who Jesus is, proclaim him. We don't have to, we don't have to force people who are amazed by Jesus and who love Jesus to talk about Jesus. Let us be amazed. And then let us talk. Let us declare Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for your care in giving us Jesus Christ. Opportunity to see him today. Lord, I pray that as we sing of him, as we proclaim his goodness and his glory, Lord, may, may we celebrate all that is accomplished, not, not by us, oh, weak and frail as we are, but by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, His work is amazing. His new life is incredible. Lord, may we exult in Him this morning. May He be on our lips as we leave this building. May He be the thing we talk about, encouraging our brothers and sisters, our children, our parents, our grandparents, whoever it is we're with today. Lord, may we, may we exalt our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.